Friends, it really is good to be back preaching in the pulpit this morning. Every summer I take uh, several weeks off in, in August to take some time to reflect on the life health and and direction of our church, but also to take some time to be refreshed and and recharged in in my own soul. I'm so grateful for the team that we have here. We never skip a beat in these summer months, but I'm glad to be back with you this morning. Now, the last few weeks, one of the things the last few weeks have done is really give me an opportunity, afford me the opportunity to put words to something that I've kind of been struggling with. To reflect on something I've been struggling with and be able to put words with it. So let me share, you, share, share it with you. It's a, it's a small thing I've been struggling with uh, called the gospel, right? Now, hold on. Don't get me wrong. I have the gospel. Of the things that are new this morning, one of them is not that your pastor is no longer a Christian, okay? Um, I have the gospel. I believe. Someone amen me on this. I believe. I'm a mess made new, right? I'm a mess made new. And... Uh, If you know Christ this morning, so are you. (laughs) So are you. I believe I have the gospel. I have forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. I will have life eternal because of his goodness toward me. I have the gospel. But here's the problem. The gospel doesn't always have me. So I have the gospel, but the gospel doesn't always have me. You know what I mean? How, How sometimes you can have something, but it doesn't really have you. And many of you know that my wife, Rosie, and I were married at 18 and 19 years young. We were married in June, had a baby in August. You can do the math yourself from there. It started up life uh, living in this tiny apartment in Edinburgh. Uh, I was a student and she was staying at home uh, with uh, our daughter. You can imagine these were financially lean days. Uh, We then made the excellent financial decision of having another child, you know, it makes a lot of sense, uh, before going on to decide, well, let's move to the States, go to do a graduate degree and have another child while there. So these were were very financially lean days. Now, I never want to kind of like over-exaggerate that, like we all had shoes, okay? Um, You know, if we walked uphill one way, we walked downhill on the way back, right? We're not kind of playing our tiny violins here. But there were days in which we really had to kind of count the pennies. And you might be in these days now, or you also might remember these days. Remember, it would really impact Rosie when she went to the, the supermarket because she would have to sort of total up things in her mind as she went around to be sure that we'd have enough money to pay for it on the way out, you know? Um, and what was interesting was, that was 10 years ago, right? No one becomes a pastor for the money, but praise the Lord, things are not as financially tight as they were then. However... Rosie still carries that disposition when she goes to to the store. The symbol of it is orange juice, right? Rosie, do we have any orange juice? No, orange juice is really expensive, she says. And I'm like, we don't have 250, you know? Like, really? Like, you know, is it really, like, is it really that? Rosie has the resources, but the resources don't really have her. It's kind of not filtered down into her experience so that she's more controlled by them. Sometimes you have something, but it doesn't have you. And sometimes I have the gospel, but the gospel doesn't really have me. Now, I think if you're a Christian this morning, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. And if you're not a Christian this morning, it's important to note that becoming a Christian isn't going to give you endless certainty for the rest of your life. Often as believers, we have the gospel, but it doesn't have us. Why? Well, sometimes, for example, it's it's because of doubts. We have the gospel, but doubts creep in. We start wondering, like, 
is this all true? Do, do you ever do that, kind of, kind of look around and think, are we, are we just crazy? You know, are we just following something that's complete ridiculousness? Even if we believe it's true, sometimes we worry, well, you know, is this worth it? Is, is following Jesus worth it? Is it worth having some of this relational tension with my friends who don't know the Lord? Is pursuing purity worth it? Is writing that tithe check worth it? We have these doubts that creep in. And often though we have the gospel, these doubts start to become controlling. <laughs> sometimes it's not our doubts. Sometimes it, it, it's, it's our sin. We have the gospel, but we're struggling with sin. We're embarrassed about sin from the past. Or we're ashamed about our present struggles. <laughs> like we can only look to the past to find our struggles with sin, right? And yes, we have the gospel, but our sin kind of becomes controlled. Or, you know, sometimes it's not even anything as profound as doubts or, or sin. Sometimes it's just as simple as, like, just the busyness of life. <laughs> we have the gospel, but we're busy. And so busyness just kind of chokes out our experience of Christ. So you know what that's like. You go to the office and that kind of internal drive you have and then some of the external pressures mean that your time and attention is being given to uh, the work of the day, not to the Lord. Or at home, for example, I don't know. Is anyone else trying to schedule carpool just now? Right? I, I have four children. It feels like I have eight. Okay? And they're all going in different directions and playing different sports. And I am very sure I'm going to leave someone somewhere at some point. Uh, any parents done that? Yeah? Okay. Praise the Lord for you. Okay? There is hope. Right? Um, again, we have the gospel. But just in the, the busyness of life sort of takes over. And it doesn't really have us. I was having a, a coffee with a friend a couple of weeks ago, and he, he described this experience as, as like, um, have you ever been caught out in one of those just torrential downpours? It's the kind of rain that you could only get caught out in because you would never go out in it. <laughs> you know those rainstorms where the heaven just open and it just pours? It's like, it's like a shower, right? Someone has turned a shower on, and you're out there, and you're just, you're just drenched. Yeah. Well, some of my friends said, is the love of God for us? in Christ. The love of God isn't sent out like a faucet. It isn't sent out like a hose. It is sent out like the heavens have opened up and it is being poured lavishly out upon us. And yet sometimes do we not find ourselves putting up umbrellas in the rain? Our doubts, our sins, our fears stop us from experiencing the love of God in Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. It's still pouring. Right? It's still pouring, but, but we are dry. The gospel isn't saturating us. It's not, you know, consuming us. We find that we have it, but it doesn't really have us. And sometimes that's the way it is in the Christian life. We have the gospel, but it doesn't have, have us. So, what does God have to say about this? <laughs> Enter Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21. This is one of the most, to me, staggeringly profound and beautiful passages in all of the Bible. I love this section of scripture. In it, Paul prays, and here's what he prays. He prays that everything you have would have you. He prays that you would buy orange juice, drink it, and enjoy it. He prays that you would not just put your umbrella away, but that you would dance in the rain. 
that everything you have would have you, that you would be controlled by the gospel. Let's, let's look at this passage together. Before he starts praying, Paul says three things that are great. Three things that I love because they're designed to remind us of who it is we're praying to. So before we get praying, let's just think a little second about who it is that we're praying to. Paul says, first, I bow my knees before the Father. It's right and it's good to engage our bodies in worship. And here Paul engages his, bowing his knee before the Father, which was an unusual thing to do in in his day, to say, you are God, I'm not. You are the creator, I am the creature. You are infinite, I am finite. You are strong and I am weak. You are exalted, I am lowly. What else would I do when I come into your presence but bow before you? God is glorious. Second thing he says to remind us to he's praying to is that one, he bows his knees. Two, before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. They did a paternity test on everyone who ever lived. Guess what? God's the Father. He is the head of every family. He is the chief of every clan, every tribe, people, nation, and language are under his authority, whether they recognize it or not. Our God is is glorious. A third thing Paul says to remind us who we're praying to is one, he kneels to before the Father. And thirdly, he prays in verse 16, you see it there, that God would answer this prayer according to the riches of his glory. He's saying, God, God has inexhaustible resources at his disposal. And he is pleased. Do you you believe this? He is pleased to marshal them for the welfare of his children. For the welfare of those who would call upon him. No one is wealthier than God and no one is more generous than he. And so Paul starts this prayer with these reminders to say, hey, we're about to pray, but we are praying to someone glorious. And we are praying to someone generous. And then he begins his prayer. His prayer that all we have would have us. Notice in the text that it follows a very careful structure. He makes three requests, each of which build on the other. It's like three steps on a staircase that takes him to his ultimate destination. Let's look at these three steps together. First of all, step one, he prays in verse 16. What, is he, what does he pray that you would have? He, he prays that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Isn't that a great thing to pray for? That your soul would be strong because the spirit is in you. That you would have steel in your spine and iron in your gut and strength in your soul. That you would find that you are fortified and braced and invigorated for whatever life would throw at you. That you have the kind of spiritual courage that is necessary to lead the life of faith. What a, what a beautiful thing to pray for. But it's just step one. It's, it's not the main point. Okay? Step one it's not, it's not, isn't the conclusion he is, he is praying for. It's not the destination he is driving toward. No, it's just the step that will take us to step Two. So step one, he wants us to be strengthened. In order that, step two, look at verse 17. 
Be strengthened so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength. Underline that word. Be strengthened that you may have strength. Why? To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You catch that? He's saying, be strengthened, step one. In order that step two, you would have the strength to know that God loved you. To know that God loves you. God wants you to know this morning that that he loves you. I, I think so often we kind of get this confused. As if the point of Christianity is to show God that we love him. That's not the point. <laughs> the point of Christianity is that God loves us. What do you think is more important to me as a father? That my children show me they love me or that they know I love them? What's more important to you as a parent? Of course that your children would know that you love them. And in the same way, God wants you to know that he loves you. He wants you, verse 17, you see it there, to be rooted and grounded in this love. Isn't that great? Rooted like a tree. You're finding your life from the love of God. Grounded like the foundation of, of a house. You're finding stability, security in the love of God. Verse 18, he continues, he wants you to know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of his love for you. He wants you to know the full dimensions of his love. Breadth, how how broad is the love of Christ? It's broad enough to encompass every sin, every mistake, every failure, every guilt that you have ever committed or will ever commit. You cannot outsin the breadth of God. You cannot outsin the breadth of His love. Well, length, how long is the love of Christ? Paul has, Paul has told us in Ephesians that it began in eternity past. Before the foundation of the world, He chose us to be holy and blameless in love. He predestined us. When will this love run out? <laughs> it won't, eternity future. Before time and beyond it, you cannot put a clock on God's love for you in Christ. Height, how high is the love of God in Christ? Do you remember Psalm 103? As high as the heavens are above the earth, so far is his love for those who fear him. As high as the heavens are above the earth. Okay, well what about depth? How, how deep is the love of God in Christ. And the scripture says, not just as deep as the deepest ocean, but Christ descended to the very depths of hell in order to get you. God wants you to know the immeasurable dimensions of his love towards you. It's a profound and it's, it's a beautiful truth, but hold on, it's not even the main point yet. It's just step two. 
Step one, be strengthened in order that step two, you might know his love. And this was a surprise to me because I kind of thought that's what this prayer was about. Before I really dived into it, if you'd asked me like, oh, what's Ephesians 3 about? I said, oh, Paul's praying that you'll know Christ loves you, right? And that's a great thing to pray for. And Paul is praying that, but that's not really what he's driving at. That's not the ultimate conclusion he has in view. No, he says step one, be strengthened so that step two, you'd know God loves you. In order that step three, look at the verse 19. You may be filled with all the fullness of God. You may be filled with all the fullness of God. The conclusion Paul is praying for, the end he has in mind, what he really wants for you is to be filled with all the fullness of God. Now when I read that, I thought, that sounds awesome. And I don't know what it means. (laughs) Right? Filled with all the fullness of God? Um, what, what, What does it mean to be filled with the fullness of God. Well, I think we're helped in our understanding when we remember how Paul uses this phrase, fullness of God. And he uses it to refer to Jesus. So flick ahead a couple of pages. Out of Ephesians, go past Philippians, and turn one more page to the book of Colossians. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1. Paul, who who also wrote this prayer in Ephesians, says, For in him, who's him? Christ. In Christ, all the, see it there? Fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Turn over one more page, chapter 2 of Colossians. Look at verse 9. Again, for in him, that is, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, when Paul is praying that you would be filled with all the fullness of God, he is praying nothing less than that you would be filled with Christ himself. That you would be filled with Christ himself. That you wouldn't just have Jesus, but that Jesus would have you. Now, friends, at this point, I want to be slow to speak because we we are... Take off your sandals, right? Because we are on holy ground. As we try and describe what it means to be filled with the fullness of God, to have Christ in us, it reminds me of Psalm 139. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. We are drifting close to the limits of human vocabulary. But as we do so, we can taste something of the significance here. Can we not? Paul is saying, Christ will not be content be external to you. Christ is not content to be external to you. As if Christ is here and he's saying, hey you, hey you, yeah, back row. Yeah, I see you. Okay, I see you. Um, Be strengthened and know I love you. Run along and have a good day now. That's not enough for Christ. Instead, Christ wants to fill you, not just with strength, not just with knowledge, not with a thing, but rather with himself. Christ wants to be in us. He wants to abide in us and us in him. He wants, as it were, to be one flesh with us. Only more than that, one soul. One soul. In other words, he desires that most intimate of relationships where we don't just have faith in him, but have active fellowship with him. John Calvin to the rescue. You ready? This is a really good quote. Faith, 
Faith is not a distant view. So Jesus over there, we're kind of looking and we're saying, okay, we got faith in him, right? Faith is not a distant view, but a warm embrace of Christ. A warm embrace of Christ by which he dwells in us and we are filled with the divine spirit. Here's the point. Paul is praying that everything we have would have us, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God and find as that happens that we don't just have the gospel, but the gospel has us. We don't just have Jesus, but Jesus has us. Tell you about one person who got this? David the pirate. David the pirate, I heard about him from a PCA uh, pastor friend. Uh, true story of a, a PCA church in Atlanta. And you know PCA churches were kind of, uh, you know, red carpets, buttoned down, brushed chandeliers. Can remind you of anywhere, right? Um, and, uh, you know, this very nice church doing very good ministry. And then one day, um, a homeless man wanders in to their service. It turns out his name is David, but the kids call him David the pirate. <laughs> Because he is very disheveled and he is very unkempt and he has a slew of tattoos and he uh, comes in always smelling of alcohol. Church comes around, David the pirate tried to get to know him, uh, tried to start loving him. He keeps coming back to the church. At first they were surprised but were thrilled that that he did and, and they start building a relationship with him. They start trying to get him connected to the life of the church. So one Sunday they give him the job of handing out the bulletins. But then he dropped a stack of them and dropped some F-bombs. And they thought, let's give him another job further away from the children. Right? (laughs) But he kept coming. And then one day, David the pirate became a Christian. He heard the good news of the gospel receive forgiveness of sins and life everlasting and the church celebrated and started to come around him all the more and started to try to help him with the problems he still had his, his homelessness, his drinking just trying to love him as best they could well one Sunday morning it was a communion Sunday and you know on communion Sunday there's a special reverence or solemnity in the air you come in and you see the, the table laid out and it's a, a special moment in the life of the church and the pastor got up and the pastor preached the gospel and then he transitioned to the table and just before he started what we call the words of institution on the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed he took bread just before he started those words up from the back row right down the center aisle comes David the pirate he kind of collapses in the front pew and starts to sob now not a kind of nice pretty tissue kind of sob a loud uncontrollable crying pastor kind of stops feels a little awkward Members of the congregation get up, come over to him, place hands on him, pray, pray with him and love on him. Isn't that beautiful? A pastor thinks, well, I guess I carry on. Okay? Carries on with the words of institution. Broke bread, gave it to his disciples. In the same manner, he also took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. So drink from it, all of you. There's a hush in the sanctuary. The solemnity of the moment before the sacrament is served. Then all of a sudden, the hush is broken as David the pirate says, Pastor, I'm sorry. The gospel is just kicking my ass. (laughs) Everyone stops. (laughs) You can't say that in church, right? Kids, you can't say that anywhere, okay? You know, 
there's no doubt one member was, was already writing an email, okay? <laughs> and as they typed, another member started to applaud until the whole congregation joined in. Why? Because they knew they needed the gospel to kick their butts every bit as much as David the pirate did. And as we come to, to Paul's prayer, I want you to know that his prayer for us and, and, and my prayer for you as your pastor, my prayer for you is that the gospel would kick your butt so that you'd be filled with the fullness of God. My prayer for you is that your faith, like what are we doing here, right? It wouldn't be about sort of becoming a better you or learning how to raise these children or proving to God that you love him. Those things will happen as you walk with Christ, but that's not what it's about. My prayer for you is that everything you have would have you as you're filled with the fullness of God. And and my prayer for myself and my prayer for you is really our our prayer for, for our church, you know, again, what are we doing? We don't want to be just going through the motions, uh, keeping up appearances, playing the Christian game. We want to be that church that stands and applauds when God gives grace to sinners because we know we need it more than anyone. We want to be a church where everything we have has us. How does that happen? In many ways, that's what this series is about. Learning how to put our umbrellas down in the rain. (laughs) That we might experience the love of God and that it might change us. That we might get drenched and enjoy it. I want you to know though that for today and even in this series, the point is really, is really, um, Paul's, this is a prayer. Why? Because friends, there, I don't have five keys to being filled with the fullness of God, Right? soon available in book and DVD, right? Um, We are requesting a supernatural act of God where he invades your life with strength and love to the extent that you are filled with his fullness. That's a supernatural act of the spirit that we are calling upon him to do in us. How does it sound? Does it sound idealistic, you know? Really, Pastor? In this day, in this age, we're going to live with such reckless abandon for Christ. Or perhaps it sounds just a little unrealistic. You know, Pastor, I've been a Christian for a long time and I believe it, but my faith's been stale and dry. Or, Pastor, I could never be a Christian because you don't know the things I've done. <laughs> Paul wondered if we might feel this way. He, might, he, he wondered if we might find this prayer too audacious, uh, idealistic unrealistic and so see how he ends it see how he ends this prayer to assure us that everything we long for is already ours that it can be our experience in him to assure us that grace changes everything to assure us that everything we have can have us he closes his prayer with doxology saying now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think this sounds impossible yeah well yes But to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen? Amen. For Paul, 
Words give way to worship. And as we come to this text, may we do the same in our hearts together. Father, we come to your words, and it is uh, that profound experience of being on holy ground. It is that experience of uh, nearing the limits of human vocabulary. It is that experience of finding such knowledge too wonderful for us, too high that we can't attain it. And so, Lord, we call upon you to do a, a supernatural work in our hearts. Strengthen us with power, that we might know your love, that we might be filled with all your fullness. Lord, I pray that you would kick our butts so that we would drink orange juice and dance in the rain and find that everything we have has us. We pray it in your perfect name. Amen.